Well, it's nice to see you here this morning. If you're a guest with us today, we're delighted you've joined us. If you're worshiping with us on SOCC.TV, we're glad you've joined us as well. We are starting a new series. Quentin told you a little bit about that. Um, and that, that, that song, Live, uh, that we just sang about living for Jesus is a very good theme for where we're headed. And this, this series sort of grows out of the other one where we were trying to dispel some misconceptions about God and give us a clear image of who God is. And the best way to do that is to know Jesus. Because as we talked about last week, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So the new series is Live Like Jesus. And today we're going to talk about Come, Follow Me. It was the last movie that Walt Disney himself produced before he died of cancer in 1966, just two weeks after the release of this movie. It was also the first of 10 Disney movies that star Kurt Russell would be in, and uh, he was 15 years old at the time. The film, which is a heartwarming and comedic kind of approach, features a military exercise, the Boy Scouts and their campground in their large lake, and actor Fred McMurray, who is a scoutmaster, accepts the challenge of mentoring a young troublemaker whose life is soon transformed for the better. Maybe you saw it. Maybe you've watched it in reruns. It's simply called Follow Me Boys. It was a really good movie back in the day. Well, long before Disney's silver screen masterpieces, the master himself set the standard for what a discipleship life looked like. A life that was devoted to helping others find who and what really matters in life. And in this story, it takes place by the Lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walks the shoreline, finds some, well, maybe what in that day and time would have been some weathered fishermen. And, uh, well, Matthew gives us a glimpse into what happens. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. But to really understand the context of that invitation, you have to see the big picture story. And Luke provides us with details that give us insight into both Jesus and Peter at this transformational time in their lives. When Jesus invites Peter, he doesn't just invite Peter. He is really inviting all of us. Come, follow me. So one of the most powerful stories of that urgent invitation comes in Luke chapter 5. <clears throat> so if you've got uh, your scriptures with you or if you have your uh, cell phone, your smartphone, your, your tablet, if you have a Dick Tracy watch that's got scripture on it, wh whatever you have, uh, I, I want you to turn to this passage right now and follow along. You can follow along on the screen too if you want to. Here's the deal. When you look at scripture and you hear scripture, it, it has a tendency to, to help us absorb it better. If you just listen it doesn't stick as much as if you're seeing and hearing at the same time. We're going to go through Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It's, this great story opens this way. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. The, the, the Sea of Galilee was known by three different names. With people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. 
He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore, and then he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. Now, this, this body of water, the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, is nestled in a low spot of the Earth's surface, making it 680 feet below sea level. We got some pictures here of when we were in, in Israel. I've got to tell you, it, it, it was a moving moment whenever... I saw for the first time the Sea of, of, of Galilee, and you can just begin to imagine this moment transpiring uh, in, in the past. There were, there were nine fishing communities that dotted the shores of this beautiful sea, none of which had fewer than 15,000 people. The fishing industry around the Sea of Galilee was the mainstay of the area, and for good reason. The Bible says that there, were, there was a great number of fish in the sea. Now, Peter was from the seaside community, uh, community of Bethsaida, which means house of fishing. But he also owned a home in Capernaum, which is where we are told that he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. We have another picture here of the, of the foundation of what is believed to be the house that belonged to Peter. Uh, there is a church building built above it, but you can still see the foundation stones. This is evidently where Jesus uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law, and it was just a short distance, literally a stone's throw from where the synagogue was where Jesus taught so frequently in Capernaum. Peter would not have objected to the use of his boat as a pulpit. After all, Jesus had healed his mother-in-law. This would have been a small thanks for such a grand gift to his family. And secondly, they were done fishing for the night, and they were merely cleaning their equipment. And so I'm sure he welcomed the lesson while they were winding up their futile efforts. It had been a lousy night. A bad fishing night. They had no fish to show for their hard work and all their labor. That's frustrating because when your business depends on providing fresh fish and you don't have any to provide, that's a hard day. That's a tough day. So anything positive would have been a welcome change. But to understand what happens next, it would be helpful to keep in mind that Peter was a successful fisherman. As was true with some along the shore of Galilee, Peter and Andrew probably owned their own boats, had employees in their business, and may have joined in a partnership for a, a complete company with uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. As a matter of fact, we know they were partners. Now, whether they kept their businesses separate and shared, we don't know. But it could very well be that they had formed a, almost a conglomerate together. Such fishermen would have been found in the middle class of culture and society. Uh, they would have been far more uh, well off than say Jesus would have been as a carpenter, which was near the very bottom of the stack at that day and time. And so these guys uh, were doing fairly well. That's why Peter had two homes, one in Bethsaida and the other one in Capernaum. And knowing what we know about Peter from scripture, I'm just guessing, but I'd conclude that Peter probably felt that he was the best fisherman on the sea. That, that nobody knew fishing quite like Peter, which would help to understand his response to Jesus' next request. In verse four, it says, when he had finished speaking, that is when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now put out in the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now you can read it like that. <clears throat> Or I think you can read it like Peter probably really said it and how he really meant it. 
I think there's probably a, a, a bit of frustration in his voice. Maybe there's a condescending tone in his voice. They just finished cleaning up all their equipment. It had been a lousy night. They were tired. They wanted to go home and rest. And, and besides that, who's the fisherman here and who's the preacher? Okay? So I think Peter's voice would have been more like this. Lord, we've been at this all night and we've caught nothing. Now is not the time to fish. I've been doing this all my life and I'm telling you, it won't work. You're a fine preacher and I'm sure you're a much better carpenter than I could ever dream of being. But I know fishing and I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. And then with the condescending tone of saying, I know I can't convince you of this, so I'm just going to have to show you. However, because you have asked me to do so, I'll launch out into the deep so that later on I can tell you, I told you so. <clears throat> now, that's what I think is happening in the conversation, okay? And I, I kind of understand this, all right? I, I, I do. But in verse 6, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help. And when they came, they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Do you understand what's happening here? This is a catch like they have never experienced ever in their lives. Peter's skepticism soon turns to surprise and soon turns to amazement. He signals his partners, and by the time the fish are all gathered out of the breaking nets into the boats, they barely make it to the shore. In the urgency of the moment, Peter is dealing with the crisis, but once the crisis is over, this is what we read in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. <clears throat> then Jesus said to Simon, <laughs> don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Come, Peter. Follow me. Come, Christian." Follow me. Now, it's just the way my mind works, but there's, there's something that's not mentioned here in the story. What happened to the fish? <laughs> Ever stop thinking about that? You know, they left everything and they followed him. You know, what happened to the fish? Best catch ever. Well, I, I don't think the fish were wasted. That wouldn't be Jesus' style, and it certainly wouldn't have been the style of the apostle. Remember, they, they still had... They still had a business, so I think their employees came, got the fish all prepared, took it to market and everything else. But they didn't give up their business, folks. Because right after the crucifixion of Jesus, where do we find Peter, Andrew, James, and John? They're right back out on the fishing. Uh, I mean, they kept the business going, but they themselves went and followed Jesus. This incredible moment is not so much about Peter catching fish, but about the Lord catching Peter. It was from this point onward that Peter's priorities in life changed. He was beginning to understand what it means to live like Jesus. And so there's some lessons that grow out of this that I think are valuable to even to us today because the invitation is to us too. Come, follow me.
Well, following Jesus begins with listening. That's the first lesson that comes out of this. Following Jesus begins with listening. G.K. Chesterton wrote, he said, there is a lot of difference between listening and hearing. I'm struck by the number of people that heard Jesus speaking throughout his earthly ministry, but how few really listened to what he had to say. While teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum again, Jesus spoke to the crowd metaphorically. In John chapter 6, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This may have been a veiled reference to the Lord's Supper coming down the road that the church would celebrate for all time. But really, what Jesus was communicating with his words is this. What I say, the truth that I'm imparting to you must be as integral to your life as food and water are to the body. In other words, that food and water sustain our physical body, so Jesus Christ sustains our spiritual soul. He is the source of life. He wasn't talking about cannibalism, but I think, I think Jesus said it in these very strong words to sort of thin the herd. You see what I mean? Because Jesus is looking at this crowd of people that had begun to follow him because he was entertaining to listen to. And occasionally there were miracles that were just thrilling. But they really weren't listening to what he was saying about who he is and how important it is that we live for him. And so when some people heard this, they took him at face value and just said, ooh, that's gross. I'm out of here. I'm not following this guy anymore. But there were those who heard and understood what he was trying to say, and they continued to follow because Jesus wasn't interested in the casual follower. He wanted people who were devoted, who were going to live like him. Listening is vital in every aspect of life. The International Journal of Speech-Language Pathology cites evidence concerning a growing number of children known as poor comprehenders who fail to develop adequate reading comprehension skills primarily due to poor listening comprehension. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that fascinating that my ability to comprehend what I read or what I study is predicated on my ability to listen. And in our current day, when information comes at us like water out of a fire hose, it impacts our ability to listen and consequently be able to discern what's important and what's not. To be a sincere follower of Jesus, we must first be able to tune out all the other would-be sounds of spiritual truth and focus on him. I'm talking about the same ability of a mother who discerns her baby crying in the cacophony of dozens of other crying babies. You know what I mean. It's the athlete's ability to discern the coach's voice in the din of a cheering crowd. When you can tune everything else out and listen to that one which matters most. And the lessons on the importance of listening come from the most unusual places. Are you ready for this? Honey is nature's perfect sweetener. But did you know it takes good listening to produce it? You think, what in the world is he talking about? 
New research reveals that flowers listen and respond. Now, honestly, I don't think the best sermon I have ever preached would impress the geraniums around our house. But when a recording of a bee buzzing was played back to evening primrose flowers, the blooms began to vibrate. It's as if the petals acted as receptors to the sound coming from the bee, like the outer ear on our heads funnels the sound to the inner ear where it is picked up by the brain. Immediately, the primrose began to produce a nectar with a 20% increase in sugar concentration. Producing such a high grade of nectar all the time would waste the flower's resources. And in addition to that, the unused nectar would spoil in the heat. But the buzzing sound, the buzzing sound of a bee triggers a perfect and timely response, creating a profitable moment, not only for the bee, but also for the flower. You see, the flower doesn't just hear. It listens for the right sound. Isn't that absolutely fascinating? By the way, if your spouse doesn't listen, don't go buzzing behind his or her ears. It only works for flowers, all right? Are you listening to the right words to guide your life? Or does God's word get lost in the jumble of words that cascade over us daily? Hearing is one thing, but the ability to listen and discern God's truth will change your life forever. It's no wonder the psalmist said, Lord, your words are sweeter than honey. They're worth listening to. Not just hearing, but listening to. And I love the fact that in the text, Peter may have had his doubts about the Lord's fishing knowledge, but he listens with the intent to obey. There's a lesson for us here. We may not always understand the why, just as Peter didn't understand why Jesus was asking him to launch out. We may not always understand the why of God's message or God's commands, but if we listen with the intent to obey, we are on our way to becoming genuine followers of his. We are learning how to live like Jesus. Here's something else. Following Jesus leads us to the fish. (laughs) I have had the great joy of fishing with our grandkids on the farm pond back in Illinois. That pond, however, has been a bit deceptive in the sense that the kids pulled in fish almost as fast as their bait hit the water. Know what it was about it? It just was that way. Every time the kids would fish there, I always intended to fish with them. Never got the chance. I was too too busy baiting hooks and taking fish off hooks. I was exhausted by the time it was all over. But it was a wonderful exhaustion because I saw my grandkids catching fish one after the other. This year we went out there, and there's been a problem with the dam, and so the the, the pond had to be. Uh, emptied. It's got to spend several months drying out and then they will rebuild the dam and refill it. But it was kind of a, a disappointing thing this year. Now there's a couple other farm ponds around close by uh, on the property, but they don't have fish in them. But I could have said, hey kids, let's go fish in the other pond. But how disappointing would that have been? What, what, what a waste of, of, of what you're trying to accomplish would that have been? As Christians, 
We often spend most of our time with other Christians so that we have no place or no one with whom to share our faith. Now, uh, now please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not suggesting that spending time with Christians is a waste of time. To the contrary, I believe we are to develop wonderful relationships with other believers because it is through those relationships that we get through the tough times of our life. When you've got close people, close friends, close members of the body of Christ next to you, you can get through the toughest of times, which is another reason why you need to be in a life group if you're not in a life group because this is a grand way to build those relationships. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend time with Christians. You should. But you also need to spend some time with some non-believers. How else are you going to help communicate the mission of the church if you don't? Theologian William Barclay in his commentary on Luke with regard to this miracle believes that there's really no miracle in this text. You know what he says? He says, Jesus just had better eyes, could see where the fish were swimming. Oh, please. You know, that takes more faith to believe than the miracle itself. And that wouldn't have impressed Peter at all if Jesus could kind of look out there and say, oh, I think they're over here, you know. And, and besides that, do good eyes make the biggest fishing catch ever, the, the kind of catch that breaks nets? This is, this is no trickery. This is the master of the winds and the waves who silenced when he spoke to them. This is the master who spoke to the deceptive fig tree and it withered. This is the master who could direct a huge school of fish right into the nets of Peter, James, Andrew, and John. I've noticed something about people who fish really well. Is that they are reluctant to share with you when they have a good fishing hole. In fishing tournaments, a good fisherman never divulges his best lure, the best spot, or his best technique. But I'm telling you, when it comes to fishing in the kingdom, just the opposite is true. If you know people that need to know the gospel, be sure and share that. Because even if you can't maybe engage their life, somebody else in the body of Christ might. You know, we've talked about developing our one life over the last couple of years. How are you doing with that, by the way? Part of living like Jesus is sharing your story in him. Sharing his story in you. You see, you don't have to be great theologians. You don't have to answer all the deep, dark questions because most of the time, people who are looking for spiritual wisdom in this life really just want to know what differences Jesus made in your life. You've got a story to tell. And nobody can tell your story as well as you can tell your story. Just last Sunday... Down at Sherwood Oaks, Bedford, one of our men baptized his one life. That is so thrilling. You talk about exciting. I I, I can't wait for you to be able to do that with your one life. So don't give up or lose heart if your one life is a little hard to, to reach. Keep telling your story. Keep living like Jesus because, well, the Lord will lead us to where the fish are. So where are the best best fishing holes where you can cast your net of influence? Well, family is the first one. Those who live under our roofs should be the first priority, but they're often the last because of the awkward conversations. But to win the world and to lose your own household is indeed a tragedy. 
Parents, take time to share the message with your children and model the life so that they will see your commitment to the Lord. Grandparents, do the same thing. Share it with your grandchildren. Model it before your grandchildren because sometimes grandparents can have as big of an influence, maybe even more than parents. Uh, part of the problem is that too many adults live a double standard. You know, we, we tell our kids that this is really important, but then we don't act like it's really important. And so when Junior gets away from home, he sees that, well, when you become an adult, church isn't really all that important, and he strays from the faith. I'm here to remind you that when you die, you will not take one thing out of your house with you, but you can take your family with you. So the first place to cast your net is at home. Also, cast your net at work. I, I'm, I'm amazed at the number of people who believe that work and my faith should be at, well, two different places in my life, that one does not impact the other. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to share your faith. There can be a subtle way to share your faith. There can be a bombastic way to share your faith that doesn't work at work. But you can be a witness. You can be a testimony. You can speak when you have the opportunity. Do not conclude that your faith has no impact on your work. And if you're an employer this morning, you live in such a way that how you treat your employees is a reflection of Jesus Christ. They will respect your leadership and they will want to know what it is that makes you different than other employers because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Cast your net at work. And then cast your net in your neighborhood. You know people in and around you that do not have a spiritual hope. By doing things for and with them, you will have an impact. May I remind you again that a life group is a good place to start, especially if you bring in somebody to that life group who is, well, maybe nominally struggling with their faith. And maybe through those relationships, they will make that choice to follow Christ. When we do these things, when we cast our net, we're learning to live like Jesus. Here's the last thing. Follow Jesus. Following Jesus leads to expectations. I'm an amateur fisherman. So, you know, I, I don't have a lot of wisdom or advice, but I've learned that when you fish with a master, boy, expect things to happen. Because a master fisherman knows the equipment to have, the bait and the lures to have, the places to go. When I started fishing as a kid, I, I fished with a cane pole off the, off the side of, of, of the lake or the pond, wherever I happened to be. I thought it was okay, didn't catch very many. And then somebody got me a rod and reel. Wow, what a difference that made. And then I got the, the opportunity to fish from a boat. Somebody invited me to go in with their rowboat. I got to fish from a boat. Wow, what a difference that made. You begin to learn that people who do this in, in, a, in a grand way know how to do it and get results. And so when you fish with an expert, expect results. You see, the master fisherman has all the equipment, lots of experience, and a great desire to fish. And I know that we've got some really good fishermen, some master fishermen here in the congregation. The challenge of living like Jesus isn't about becoming a master at fishing. It's about fishing for the master. It's got to remain a priority for the church. It's the reason the church exists. The church is not a club, although I hope you'll find our fellowship enjoy, uh, encouraging. It's not an entertainment business, although I hope you'll enjoy our time together here when we gather the church is not in the handout business, although I want us to be able to make a difference in the lives of those who face unfortunate circumstances. The church has but one mission. It is a soul-saving institution. That is the business of the church. It is the only 
It is the only business that has its main focus in reaching people for eternity. It was the mission of the first century church. It must be the mission of the 21st century church. And it must be a priority for individual Christians. If you were on a sinking ship and you had two life jackets, would you refuse to give one to another passenger by saying, it's not my job to distribute life-giving equipment? Or if you were on an airplane that was going down and lost power and you had two parachutes, would you refuse to give one up because it wasn't your job to help save somebody else's life? You say, well, those, that's, that's absurd. Of course I would share the life preserver. Of course I would share the parachute. Then why do we try and excuse ourselves from sharing the message of salvation? You know, so you give somebody a life preserver and you save them for a few years. You give somebody a parachute, you save them for a few years. You give them Jesus and, and they're saved for eternity. Now you tell me which one is the most important. Jesus didn't just invite us to follow him for the fun of following him. He invited us to follow him to fish for others. And it must be a priority because eternity hangs in the balance. Consider the things that we do that really don't last very long. If you exercise once and that's it, it's not going to last very long. I'm here to tell you. The muscles need exercise on a daily basis. An act of service is short-lived. If you say, hey, I did something nice once in my life. Isn't that enough? Well, no, somebody may have really appreciated that moment, but you've got to, you've got to keep serving to make a difference in the lives of other people. <laughs> Even eating doesn't last. Uh, try stuffing yourself at, a, at an all-you-can-eat buffet to the point that you're miserable and you say, I don't want to eat another bite of food forever. And then come tell me how you feel eight hours later, all right? Because even eating doesn't last. It's only one thing that lasts forever. And that's helping others to live like Jesus by living like Jesus ourselves. Some years ago, the Mercedes-Benz company had a TV commercial that showed one of their cars crashing into a cement wall. It was one of those safety uh, test kinds of things. And a company spokesman was asked why the company doesn't enforce their patent on their energy-absorbing car body designed uh, by Mercedes, but a design that was being copied by other automotive companies. And the spokesman simply replied, he said, well, he said, some things are far too important not to share. How true. Some things are far too important not to share. Jesus, he has asked us to follow him, to live like him, to reach others for him. So what are, what are you doing to make that mission come alive? What do you do for heaven's sake is your best investment ever. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.